America Can We Talk? I'm Debbie George Asson. Thank you to, for joining us on this Thursday show. Thank you to the studio audience. We have a wonderful studio audience today. Um, and I want to take time at the beginning to thank some people that I always mean to at the end and then I run out of time. Number one, I want to thank the Real News PR studio and the Real News Communication Network making this show available and professionals all the way. Thank you to my very wonderful producer, Mr. Becker who is organized even when I'm not. I also want to thank the, the music we hear at the beginning of the show. The singer is Krista Branch, and she's singing I Am America. And those words, if you look them up online, I Am America, they're all about what this show is about. You and everyone who's active and involved, we are America. We get to decide America's future if we take hold of that power. So Krista Branch, wonderful singer, and her husband is the songwriter, the lyric writer, so they're a great team, and I was so grateful she gave us permission to use that music. It just fits the show so perfectly. So again, welcome to America Can We Talk. Our very special Thursday guest today is Evan Sayet, and he's in studio today, which is really wonderful, always very fun to have him. Okay, they're going to clap, Yeah, right? don't they clap? <laughs> <laughs> But I want to give a bit of an introduction, to, uh, and he may need me no introduction, but I want to share some things I found interesting about him. We're going to talk about the book that he wrote called The Woke Supremacy, uh, which looks like this, and you should read it too and send it to everyone maybe under the age of 60 that you know who needs to be reminded about a lot of history. What's wrong with 60 to 80 to 100? Okay, you're right, you're right. But wait, I'm not done introducing you. Hold on. So I will tell you very quickly that um, he is a, uh, a, a real hero in conservative circles in great part because he helped to advise the Ted Cruz campaign when he was running for president, and then when Donald Trump won the nomination in 2016, he helped writing speeches for that campaign and, and working on messaging. Tremendously important. And once he was in the White House, I wrote speeches for him as well. Okay, so there you go. We, we love that. But his background is so interesting. It's really different to be that, I mean, some people, uh, many of us know, get into politics young and it's the only jobs they have. But actually, Evan say it, uh, he, he is a conservative thinker and writer and he gave a speech at the Heritage Foundation, which I will say Andrew Breitbart the Great called one of the five most important conservative speeches ever given. Pretty wonderful high praise coming from the wonderful Andrew Breitbart. Uh, he's also spoken and written, uh, written places, been published, spoken lots of different places. Uh, but he has a Hollywood background even be before that. He was actually a writer in Hollywood. So honed the skill of writing, but fortunately for the conservatives, turned his writing skills from the arena of uh, entertainment to the arena of what I call saving America or for speaking up for America. So his book is The Woke Supremacy. So we're going to talk with him about today. So welcome, sir. Well, thank you. <laughs> Another applause. They love it. Well, I want to tell you, I mentioned before we came on, but I read your book and I have it. Um, it's my signature thing. It has stickies and pencil underlinings. One thing I kept thinking about as you wrote about where we are today in the woke supremacy, was that incident back in 2015, when we still had a bunch of Republicans in the campaign for president, Scott Walker was one of them, Mayor Giuliani is in New York City at some Republican club meeting giving a speech, and he's talking about the run for the presidency. But in that speech, Mayor Giuliani said, 
you know, I probably shouldn't say this. I have an exact quote right here, but the gist of it is, I know I shouldn't say this, but I don't believe President Obama loves America. It's, it's the gist of what he said. And he had reasons he gave, policy decisions made, but the media piled on him and criticized him and tore him apart. And so Rudy Giuliani kind of immediately stepped back and said, okay, I'm really, really sorry. And he dug in and apologized. And on my show at that time, this is my show with Salem Radio, I remember talking about the idea that you can't, when you have an opportunity like that, you can't let it go. Because Mayor Giuliani could have said, you know, I'm not criticizing particularly maybe Mr. Obama, but the policies of his party are so antithetical to America. Obama's a socialist. So I'm just wondering if you have any reaction to that. If you recall that incident, and what do you thought about it? Well, I, I don't particularly recall the incident, but it's when you run for office and you say that your goal is to fundamentally transform something, clearly you don't love that thing that you, if you loved it, you wouldn't, wouldn't want to fundamentally transform it. And, and so what, what I find interesting is that that was eight years ago or 10 years ago, however long ago that was. He, Obama still had to use euphemisms. Today, they don't have to use euphemisms anymore. Now they can come right and, out and call it the revolution. You know, they hadn't quite reached that point yet where they felt they, they'd reached the tipping point where they had enough power to say what they're saying now. To, because they, they've taken off the masks. They're no longer hiding who they are. Exactly. Well, your book is called Woke Supremacy. And I was going to say that the oddest thing is seen the last few years, it just kind of seemed to emerge out of thin air. All of a sudden, we're understanding there's a woke people out there. And if you're not on the anti-American left, you're not part of the woke. But you write about in your book how it really is the outcome of years of developing thought on the left, how well, we got to our wokeness. Right. Well, what we're witnessing, what we're living through is the culmination of the 60s radicals who made no bones about the fact that they hated America, sought to overthrow America. They, they declared war against America. Bernadine Dorn, a uh, wife of William Ayers and one of the founders of the terror group, the, the Weather Underground, she approached the bank of microphones and said, hi, I, I'm Bernadine Dorn and I'm going to read to you a declaration of war. And they engaged in acts of war. They kidnapped people. They murdered people. They certainly were uh, bloodthirsty and loved to kill cops. And, and what happened was that the revolution failed. And the reason the revolution failed was they couldn't recruit anybody from the last of the great generations who knew the real world. They couldn't get people who wanted to overthrow America and replace it with socialism. Well, millions of Americans had just escaped Nazi socialism, national socialism. Millions more had just escaped Stalinism, socialism in, in the Soviet Union. Millions more Americans went over there and saw what socialism was. And nobody who had lived even with, with real problems. You know, there's a story in my book, In the Woke Supremacy, about the boxer Muhammad Ali. Uh, and, and he went to train for a fight in Africa, and he spent a month over there being supportive, spending his money, getting to know people. And when he came back, they said, hey, Mohammed, what'd you think of Africa? Now, keep in mind, this is a black man from the then still Democratic-controlled Jim Crow South. This is not just a black man from the Jim Crow South. This is a black Muslim man from the Jim Crow South. And when they said to him, Mohammed, what'd you think of Africa? He said, quote, thank God my granddaddy got on that boat. Even with real, with real problems, with real issues, not, not, not microaggressions, real aggressions, you know, people knew that America was great and only getting better. Same kind of story with Chuck Berry, you know, the, 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 the rock star. He went to, on a European tour, 
landed at uh, LaGuardia, I believe it was, got off the plane. Back in those days, you climbed down the stairs onto the tarmac, and he got down on his knees and kissed the ground. Another black man from the Democratic Party, Jim Crow South, and still they knew how great they had it in America. So when the revolution failed, they went on what's called the long march through the institutions. They slowly, sometimes by attrition, the older people were retiring. Sometimes by violence, they put a gun to the head of the, uh, of the president of Columbia University. Sometimes through intimidation, and, and, and uh, they took over the institutions. They took over education and turned it into their ministry of, of indoctrination. They took over news and entertainment and turned it into their ministry of propaganda. Now they have social media and they've turned it into their ministry of truth. And it was Mark Rudd, just another vile, disgusting radical from the 60s uh, who, who said the true flowering of the 60s will come in the 90s when we've taken over the institutions. Well, he was wrong only because he missed the obvious. Once they'd taken over the institutions, they then needed to use those institutions to brainwash successive generations. Well, Debbie, if it's 30 years from the 60s to the 90s, what's 30 years from the 90s? Here we are. Here we are. This is why they believe they've reached their critical mass. They believe that they now have their social uh, justice warriors, and that's why they've taken off their masks. That's why the, the rhetoric is the same as it was in the 60s about pigs and cops. It's this, they no longer hide the fact that they're socialists. They no longer hide the fact that they, that they seek revolution because they believe they've reached this critical mass where they, they can succeed in the revolution that failed 60 years ago. So this woke supremacy title is really this idea that where we are now, the woke supremacy is a synonym for the socialists, which the socialist ideology, the socialist ideas have taken over the Democrat Party. And I love that you attach the term supremacy because it it's really is a tell or it's an indicator about the way they function. They're not just awake and trying to share with other people the beauty of socialism and convince you through sharing their ideas. Mm -hmm. They're treating you as you are not... Uh, your ideas are not permissible. Everything we believe is right, and no one else can talk. There, there, there are two parts to this. One, the mistake people make when they think about socialism is they think that it's an ideology. It is not. It's an economic model and a, and a government structure yep. that can be employed by any number of ideologies. You know, Marxism wasn't Leninism. Leninism wasn't Stalinism. Stalinism wasn't Maoism. Maoism wasn't Hitlerism. And Hitlerism isn't Ocasio-Cortezism. Right? But <laughs> all of these various ideologies employ this economic system and this, and this governing model to advance, to advance their particular ideology. What makes wokeism a supremacist ideology, a supremacist movement has a particular meaning, and there are, there are certain qualities and traits to a supremacist movement. One, and by the way, we make a mistake, and it's understandable because, because of the singular heinousness of the Nazis, and because of the history of the Democratic Party, to whom race has always been critical to the theory behind their policies. Critical race theory isn't new to the Democrats. Race was critical to the theory behind the Democratic Party policy of slavery. Race was critical to the theory behind the Democratic Party policy of Indian removal. Race was critical to the theory behind the Democratic Party policy of interning the Japanese. So critical race theory isn't new to the Democratic Party, it's just which race they're exploiting today. But because of the history of the Democratic Party and because of the singular heinousness of the Nazis, when we think of supremacist movements, we tend to think in terms of race. 
But the reality is that history is chock full of supremacist movements, almost none of them, where race was the determinant of what I call the supreme trait. Right, so right now, in fact, there are three major supremacist movements on the planet. There's the woke supremacy, which we'll talk about in a minute. But there's the uh, Marxist supremacist movement. In the Marxist supremacist movement, the supreme trait is based not on race, but on class. In the Islamicist supremacist movement, the supreme trait is based not on race, not on class, but on creed. And, and so when we talk about the woke supremacist movement, it, the, the, the supreme trait of wokeism is not race. It is not, it, it's a particular ideology. So every supremacist movement believes, one, that every ill and evil the world has ever known has been caused by the other. Those who did not possess the supreme trait. The Nazis were convinced that every ill and evil that they knew was caused by those who weren't Aryans. The, the Islamicists believe every ill and evil the world has ever known has been caused by the infidel or the apostate. Uh, the Marxists were convinced that every ill and evil the world had ever known was caused by the bourgeoisie. And so the woke believe that every ill and evil the world has ever known has been caused by those who aren't woke. So it's a utopian movement, like every supremacist movement. Once the unwoke, once those who don't possess the supreme trait have been in some way canceled, now Hitler canceled with, with gas chambers, uh, Stalin canceled with gulags, the Islamists canceled with terror. But those were all cancel cultures. The only difference is that we now have technologies that allow them to cancel in a less gruesome, but also less obvious and less costly way. They can do it electronically. So if you go down here, every supremacist movement seeks to create a society in which all rights, privileges, protections, and opportunities belong only to those who possess the supreme trait. All others are not only to be denied these things, but it is a moral imperative to them that that society's resources be used to fully disempower, forever silence, and permanently erase the memory of all those who do not possess the supreme trait. So. Let's go down across the board and down the line. Nazis, uh, Marxists, Islamicists, woke. Do, do the woke believe that all rights should belong only to those who are woke? Should we have the right to freedom of speech? If you're not woke, no. Do all protections belong only to those who are woke? Due process, do they believe we deserve due process? No. Do all opportunities belong only to like the opportunity to run a business, have a job? If you're not woke, you're not entitled to that opportunity. Do they seek to fully disempower us, forever silence us, to erase the memory of our existence? So if you go across the board and down the line, every aspect of what makes something a supremacist movement, you can do it for the Nazis, you can do it for the Marxists, you can do it for the Islamists, you can do it for the woke. In fact, it's not even good enough just to be woke. Because like every other supremacist movement, the woke supremacists have a purity test. Just like in, in the previous Democratic Party-run supremacist movement, the, the Old South, it didn't matter how good a good old boy you were. If you had one drop of black blood, you were the other. In Nazi Germany, it didn't matter how good a German or how, even how good a Nazi you were. If you had one grandparent who was black, you were the, uh, I'm sorry, who was Jewish, you were the other. And, and the same is true in the woke supremacist movement. If you have one drop of unwokeness, in fact, there's a story I tell, I don't think it made it into my book. Maybe it did, I don't recall, about a woman named Alexi McCammond. Alexi McCammond is this 27-year-old woman who was such a good up-and-coming woke rock star that at the age of 27, that's a pretty tender age, they made her editor-in-chief of one of the most important 
supremacist periodicals out there, Teen Vogue. And, and the reason Teen Vogue is so important is because supremacist movements always go after the children. Yeah. Whether it was the Hitler Youth, whether it was Lenin's Young Pioneers, whether it's the Islamists and their madrasas. And so this is, and so they made her editor in chief of, of, of this hugely important propaganda outlet. And even before she got the chance to serve one day in that role, they forced her to resign because her co workers had found tweets from 10 years earlier from her childhood that were less than perfectly woke. Yeah, I don't think that story made in your book, but I read that story at other places. It is simply astonishing. But not written as well as I would have written them. I'm sure. Yeah, okay. I was going to say that. Yeah, well, that's going to. You actually made reference to Hitler. Before we get too Oh, far, always. Yeah, that, oh, good for you. What I was going to say about Hitler was, as soon as uh, President Trump came along uh, and was obviously going to win the nomination, there were so many analogies made, all of a sudden, that he is Hitler. And... You know, for many people in America who maybe had ancestors who were in the Holocaust or knew something about it, it's such an offensive characterization. I mean, it's just a, you don't like his ideology. You just well, that's, what, that's his, what's but, offensive about it is the ease and the, and the, and the gratu gratuitousness with which they use that word. Because I think you absolutely should compare people to Hitler if the comparison is real, which is why, which is why I do. Because, look, famously, we say never again. Yeah. Well, never again implies that you know it can happen again. So if you don't call something what it is, then, then you're not paying tribute and, you're, and never again is just a slogan. On the other hand, if you cheapen it by calling everybody with whom you disagree, but there's a reason that they call everybody you disagree. And it wasn't just Trump. It, it, was, uh, it, it was Bush. It was Reagan. It was, in fact, I went back not long ago and started to reread what's considered the seminal book of modern conservatism, uh, William Buckley's uh, God and Man at Yale. Yeah. And, and it happened to be something like the 50th edition or the 20 uh, year edition. Uh, and so they included some of the original reviews, Hitler, Stalin, Nazi, the, one after, and there's a reason for it. The key to the, I'm trying to think how to segue back to my original book, The Kindergarten of Eden and How the Modern Liberal Thinks, which is the book based on the, the speech that, that, that Andrew called one of the five most important conservative yeah, speeches ever. Yeah, hey, I'm holding it up. Let me just show that. It, was, it is actually, there's the book he's talking about here, and that yeah, caused Andrew Breitbart to give you such praise. The Kindergarten of Eden, How the Modern Liberal Thinks, and Why He's Convinced That Ignorance is Bliss. It's a really right. funny title. The, the, key, the key to understanding... The good people, you know, it's easy for us to figure out why the Marxists do what they do. They want to destroy America and, and replace it with, with, with a Marxist society. We understand why the Islamists do what they do. They want to destroy America and replace it with a global caliphate. But why does my cousin do it? Why do our neighbors do it? Why do good, smart, decent, loving people, you know, my cousin's not a Marxist. She, she, she didn't read Das Kapital and say, yes, that's what I believe in. So why do the modern liberals, now called the woke, they've morphed since writing that into, into the woke, why do good, smart, decent people like my colleagues, like my neighbors, like my, why do they reject fact and reason and side invariably, invariably, with evil over good, wrong over right, ugly over beautiful, profane over profound, and failure over success? And, and the reason for it is this. When I, when I gave that first speech, I started to get emails by, by the hundreds, by the thousands. Um, and, and this one very odd phrase kept popping up. It says, you know what you have there? You've got the unified theory of liberalism. Because once you understand what I said in that original talk, you understand, you, you answer the question that I just asked. 
so when I wrote the book, I wrote it as if it were a unified theory. I wrote it, there are four laws and there are three corollaries. Let me just give you the first two laws that should suffice. I'm going to give it to you as it's written in the book, and then I'll explain if I may. Absolutely. Right. The modern liberal, that's anybody born after World War II, getting worse with each successive generation. The modern liberal was raised to believe that indiscriminateness yeah. is a moral imperative right. because its opposite is discrimination. Right? Yep. In, in, in the 1980s, by no coincidence, when the first babies born after World War II, who became the children of the 60s, when they became the powers that be in the universities, in, in, in the newsrooms, in the studios in Hollywood, when in the 1980s, thinking was for all intents and purposes outlawed. It was deemed to be a hate crime. And the reason for it is this. Anything that you believe, anything that I believe, anything that you guys believe is going to have been so tainted by our personal prejudices. Prejudices we all have. Prejudices we can't help but have is just being part of human. It's going to be, anything we believe is going to have been so tainted by our personal prejudices that the only way not to be a bigot was to never think at all. Let me give you the second law and then... You're fine. Yeah, go ahead. The second law, again, as it's written in the book, and then I'll explain. Indiscriminateness of thought does not lead to indiscriminateness of beliefs. It leads to siding only and always with evil over good, wrong over right, ugly over beautiful. Why? Because if nothing, if no culture, no religion, no form of governance, no behavior, no sexual practice, no body shape, no body size, if nothing is better than anything else, then success is unjust. Why should a person, a religion, a culture, why should something succeed if it's not better than anything else? The flip side of that is failure, as proved by nothing other than the fact that it has failed, serves as proof positive that somehow the failure has been victimized. And then just one more step. If, if, if success and failure serves as proof positive of injustice, then great success and great failure serves as proof positive of great injustice. And exceptional success and exceptional failure proves the greatest injustices of all. Why do they hate most? America and Israel, there is no moral argument, there's no legal argument, there's no diplomatic argument, there's no, there is no argument that these are the two worst nations in the world. So why do they hate them so much? Because they're the two most successful nations. They, they are successful, yeah. This concept of indiscriminateness, you wrote about it in this book too, in that woke supremacy. Mm -hmm. You know, I've used different expressions for it, but you somehow, they, what happens on the left, they elevate the notion, I call it the moral equivalency of all ideas. Mm -hmm. They just cannot have, as if there's nothing to tether you to truth, then every idea is as good as everything else. That's correct. Every, and so you end up. Uh, lost. Not but you end up worse than lost. You end up on the wrong side of everything. Yes, and you're afraid to take a position because then the woke will tell you that was, oh, you're, now you know, you're... Long, long ago, even before all of this, I can't believe I'm not going to be able to give credit to who it was. It was one of the, the great dandies of our time. And, uh, and he said, the definition of a liberal is a chap so broad-minded he won't even take his own side in an argument. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But you end up harming, you know, the whole thing about Western civilization, especially education, was this idea you have this truly free uh, ability to exchange ideas, robust the marketplace debate. Of, in the marketplace of ideas. And they're eviscerated by this idea of indiscriminateness. I mm -hmm. mean, just eviscerated. And then you don't have any 
Go ahead. But not only do they have, they've, they've got nothing, and there's a great book out now, uh, and it's so great that I reached out to the author, and we've had now uh, a good relationship. His name is Jeremy Adams, and he, he was Teacher of the Year uh, at one point. Now he's a uh, lecturer at one of the UC schools, and the book's called Hollowed Out. And he's talking about the students that he had, and they're, they're hollowed out. They have nothing to believe in. Because if nothing's better than anything else, and, and, and so they've been deprived of literature. They don't read great literature because there's no such thing as great. In fact, if you have great literature like Shakespeare, the only reason the schools are teaching Shakespeare is because he's white. And so they, there's a campaign to remove Shakespeare. There's a campaign to remove Chaucer. There's a campaign to remove all of the great Western writers, but not because they've read it and don't think it's worthy. They haven't read it. They don't need to read it. And, and, and so one of the points I make in, in the original book is that the modern liberal, and I mean this sincerely, is morally and intellectually retarded at the level of the five-year-old child. Why five? Because that's the first time they enter the leftist establishment in kindergarten. And one of the, there was a literary phenomenon during our time. Uh, I, I, I would argue maybe the biggest literary phenomenon of our, our time was called All I Ever Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And what do you learn in kindergarten? You learn indiscriminateness. Don't hit anyone. Everyone must get a turn. There's no such thing as merit. There's no such thing as achievement. There's no such thing as, as expertise. And, and, and that's what they believe. Everything they, learned, they, everything they need to learn, they learned in kindergarten. I know we're going to jump around. I told you my earlier email, there's so many directions to go and so little time. I do want to talk about in your book, in, in this newer book, the, the Woke Supremacy, you talk about the idea of socialism and then as opposed to nationalism and how somehow today's woke movement has made the concept of love of America and nationalism into signs of a racist thought or an mm -hmm. evil thought. And one of the things I thought Donald Trump did tremendously in his campaign and later in his presidency was he kind of let, he pulled back the curtain and let people realize what leftist thought had done to the American population's perception of America. He just basically restored the idea that America is a good and noble country. He's not a radical conservative at all. He's just, it's a good and noble country. He's absolutely country. not a conservative. He, he's, he's a pragmatist, but fortunately for us, conservatism is pragmatic. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, one You'll notice I drew a distinction in this book between what I call modern nationalism and the nationalism of old, because a lot of things changed with the advent of America. And in the old days, nationalism wasn't really nationalism. It, it was devotion to the monarch. It was devotion to the king. It was devotion to the... And, and so in that way, nationalism was sort of a bad thing. What nationalism means now is that Everybody within this nation has the same rights. That's not the way it was back in the old days, but now nationalism is actually the, is, is the, is the remedy for racism. Right. Because you cannot be a nationalist and a racist because a nationalist believes all rights, privileges, protections, and opportunities belong to the citizens of the nation. That's the supreme trait is, is your common citizenship. Um, so, so you can't be a racist, you can't be a sexist, and, and the liberals know this. Can I turn you guys on to, to, to a rhetorical, a linguistic gimmick that is prevalent, that is used constantly by the political left, which is to take a concept that is essential to a good, healthy society 
insert a modifier prior to that word yep. that changes the meaning of that word 180 degrees. For example, we all know how important it is to be correct. You need to be correct in your facts. You need to be correct in your reasoning. You need to be correct in your conclusions. You need to be correct in your prescriptions. But since the left is never correct, they're always the opposite of correct. They insert the modifier politically before the word correct. And now you don't need to be factually correct. You don't need to be because they have a definition, which is anything that supports the supremacy. Let me just give another example or two, just oh, to show yeah. there's a oh, consistency yeah. to it. The left is never just, not the way we understand justice, which is the closest possible wedding from behavior to outcome. If you behave well in a just society, you should be rewarded. If you behave poorly in a just society, you should be punished. But because leftists don't believe in individual justice, they're collectivists, they've inserted the modifier social before the word justice. And now justice means attacking anybody who's white, anybody who's rich, anybody who's, anybody who's wearing a red hat. So microaggressions, there are no legitimate systemic aggressions against anybody in this nation. So they insert the modifier micro before the word aggression. Well, aggression's a physical act. A microaggression's a verbal act. An aggression is an intentional act. A microaggression is a faux pas. All right, I think I made my point. Well, yeah, you did. On the social, I want to talk about the social justice one because part of what the left is able to do by claiming that term and calling their followers social justice warriors they get to, to define justice. Indeed. It, whatever they decide they is. They get to define truth, my truth. Right. right? They define it's not truth. the truth, my truth. Yeah, and they define justice. So. Oh, but wait a second. There was a reason I brought up that story, oh, which ahead. is yeah. to talk about nationalism. <laughs> because nationalism means, at least modern nationalism means, that if you are a member of this nation, no matter your sex, no matter your religion, no matter, you are entitled to all the rights, privileges, protections, and opportunities. So in order to make us bad, they have to insert the modifier white before the word nationalist. They never call us nationalists. I'm happy to be a nationalist. But a white nationalist is not a nationalist. He's a racist. And, and so the remedy for racism, nationalism, now becomes the racism itself because they inserted the modifier. Exactly right. I love you gave many examples of inserting a modifier and changing the entire definition. And I loved your one that had to do about microaggressions because you described, I think it was at UCLA, there was a, a law school person or something yeah. who basically said the definition of microaggression was, have you ever had your feelings hurt like someone said something or they looked at you that in a way that made you, you uncomfortable? <laughs> okay. Right. And, but, but what should be recognized is if you are that far down in your grievances, that your complaint is not that you're being marched off to gas chamber. Your complaint is not that you're being put into your, your complaint is even you, your complaint now is your classmate made you feel bad with a look. You know, when you're down to you've misgendered a plastic toy potato. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe we're a pretty good block. It's an astonishing thing, and it's so stifling. Again, I go back to these. I talk on my show a lot about the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, this beautiful formation of a country to allow individuals to live in freedom. Part of it is the First Amendment notion that you actually have the right to free speech. You even have the right to offend others. Not that I, you should try, as an ethical person, you don't try to offend others, but you have the right to speak truth. And, and you can say this you is You have the right to speak untruth, too. You do. And, and, and someone else says, I disagree with you. Their answer is, well, they argue back or walk away or change the channel, whatever you're doing. 
but this is a uh, smothering of the whole concept of free speech when you can say microaggression and the school, the entity in charge at the university is taking the side of the aggrieved, the outraged, the hurt, and what you've done is smother communication by, by everyone. Indeed, at but that, that's actually part of the plan is to prevent communications. You know, one of the reasons, the reason that Hitler put the Jews in ghettos before moving on to the final solution was to remove their voice from the community so that they could not counter the lies of the supremacy with their humanity. Well, this is what they attempt to do with stifling us on, on, on uh, social media and elsewhere, but they aren't everywhere. And so what they do is, is they can't be in the dorm room, for example. So what they do is they make you so afraid of talking to the other person that you ghettoize yourself. And I know that because we, we discussed this a little bit earlier, how important it is to talk about what we can do. That's the first thing that we can do is stop self-ghettoizing. Stop being, stop censoring ourselves. And I know it's hard. You go, you go to Thanksgiving or you go to Passover or you go to Christmas and you don't want to cause trouble. You want to have a nice time. And so e even when the leftists who don't have a problem saying what they say, um, were you spying on Thanksgiving dinner? No, just go ahead. No, but I, but I, have, I, I have a story. I, I've not tried to tell this, so I don't know that it's, it's TV and radio time friendly. So I'll try to get through it as quickly as I can. But I'm at my cousin's house for Passover, and he's not a radical leftist, but he'd gone to shul that day. He'd gone to temple that day, and, and the rabbi said this, and so he repeated it. because he, And he said, the kids were out of the room, and he stood up on, on his chair, and he, and he hit the, the crystal, and he quieted all the adults. And he said, we have to do more to help the Sudanese. And I'm thinking, okay, I mean, that's a really awful situation, but what do you want us to do? I didn't say this out loud, this is what I'm thinking. What, what, do you, what, what would you have us do and what haven't we done? Because anything we try is just gonna get stolen by the warlords. Do you want us to go to war? Do you want us to invade? What do you, and, and then he added, you do know why we have troops in Iraq, but not in the Sudan, don't you? Well, yeah, again, I'm thinking this. Yeah, I do, this is what I do for a living. I, I, I actually know why we do. Just, it's because the Iraqis have oil and the Sudanese are black. Oh, and I just, I, I just could, I couldn't, I, I, and I jumped up and I said, I call him Larry, not to, because his name's not Larry. Uh, and I jumped up and I said, Larry, that is asinine. I, I said, the reason that we have troops in, in Iraq and not in the Sudan is because Iraq is at the crossroads of three continents. Sudan's located on an isolated continent. The war in the Sudan is being fought with machetes. Saddam Hussein is fighting this war with poison gas. And, and at the end of it, it did nothing to, to change him. But there was another couple at the table who had just never heard this point of view. And then there was a third couple at the table who knew this and agreed, but weren't going to say anything, who maybe next time will. And so once you recognize that this is actually war, every war is fought differently. You know, the Marx tried to, to bring his supremacy to the world through, through revolution. You know, workers of the world unite. Yeah. Hitler tried to bring his utopian vision, his, his, his supremacist movement to the world through invasion. The Soviets tried to do it through uh, attrition. And the, and the Islamists tried to do it through terror. Well, we have now, through subversion and, and slowly taking over our institutions, it's war. It's absolutely, it's an existential war. You know, Tom, Thomas Sowell has a great book called The Conflict of Visions. And wars don't come over disagreements. Wars come when you have two very different worldviews that, that are 
just not compatible. They're mutually exclusive. You know, you can't have Islamicism, which believes that we should live as Muhammad did in, in, in sixth century uh, and, and, and modernism. Modernity and Islamicism, you can't compromise and say, okay, we'll live in the 1400s. It's just, there's no compromise to be had. And there's just no compromise to be had with the woke supremacists. I love that. And it kind of gets me to one point I want to really hone in on. In this book, it became obvious People look at politics and they thought and for decades in America, maybe for uh, centuries, you know, we've had two political parties. Maybe it was a third political party or fourth. And so every election cycle, we're talking about our ideas and why we think this candidate is better than this candidate and these ideas are better. But we all assumed that America was more or less going to be America, that we have the founders ideal of the Declaration, the Constitution, the structure of limited government, the three powers, all the things people learn. And it's been really hard for many Americans to recognize that what is today's Democrat Party stands for. They are, they have embraced the socialist agenda, and we really are at a war in this country. It's not bullets flying, it's not bombs dropping, but it's ideological or whatever word you want to use for it. You talk about the long march through institutions, which I've gone over endlessly on my show, because it matters to recognize the tactics used. But we're really at that place right now. I'm asking if you agree with that. You were at that oh, place. We're in this absolutely. war. Absolutely. So we're, we're already in a war. We, we, we never had a party in America that hated America. What until we had now. was two points. Until now. We, we had two parties that loved America and disagreed somewhat about how to make America even better. Mostly that are revolved around tax rates. Mostly that revolved around size of government, you know, on the margins, <laughs> on the margins. But up until fairly recently, I mean, certainly starting in the 60s and then again, as, as the last of the great generations passed on and the woke supremacists more actively took over the, the culture creating industries, we now have the pro-America party and the hate America party. And, and ultimately, I think what's going to happen is a good many of the Democrats who aren't leftists, and I believe that's a good, good many of them, who will come over to our side, and we're starting to see it. I mean, my old boss, I, I have to apologize to you, but I wrote Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher for six years. And my, he still like you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's starting to come around. You know, Matt Taibbi, who was one of the, the faces and the voices of Rolling Stone, leftist Rolling Stone magazine is coming around. Um, you're, you're seeing people starting to get it. Uh, and I think eventually what's going to happen is they will come and they will vote Republican. The Democratic Party, whether it's literally or just a name or whether, will go away. And then we will split in two. The people we call rhinos. And... I got nothing against rhinos. They are Republicans in name only because they should be Democrats. But there's no place in the Democratic Party for them. So the rhinos will become the new Democratic Party. The true conservatives will be the Republicans. And we'll go back to having debates around the margins. We'll go back to... Because the rhinos don't hate America. They just don't think our proscription for, for making it better... Is, is the right one. They think more taxes, we think less taxes. You know, they, they think slightly bigger government, we think slightly lesser government. But it's around the margins. It's not hate for America. And so that has to be purged. I think it will be purged. Uh, how much damage will have already been done? That's really 
A, first, let's win the war. But even after the war is won, just like in World War II, there's going to be a lot of damage, a lot of destruction, a lot of hollowed out people, a lot of institutions that wholly need to be recreated. Yeah, in the opening of your book, the beginning of this one, you had a quote by Matt Taibbi. I want to read. It's very short, from Rolling Stone magazine, which he wrote, the leaders of this new movement are replacing traditional liberal beliefs about tolerance, free inquiry, and even racial harmony with ideas so toxic and unattractive that they eschew debate, moving straight to shaming, threats, and intimidation. And, and, I, and I'd go even further than that, violence. Yes. What I was going to say is part of the tactic that the woke supremacy uses is shaming and, and intimidation. And so I think that people, you know, even people today who try to say, you know, the Democrat Party pretty much is socialist. I mean, I say that all the time and, and company, you know, are speaking on my show. But I think there are many uh, Americans who think we well, really shouldn't. It's just a few of the fringy people. It's just kind of, you know, Ocasio-Cortez and her yeah. little squad. Well, but it's the core of their thinking now. It's well, uh, first of all, every supremacist movement is only a handful of people. The vast majority of any so, uh, supremacist movement are the ones who've been cowed or the ones who've just simply been so steeped in the schools and and what most people are just are going about their lives for example in 1944 so that's the height of nazi power only 10 percent of the german people were actual active activist members of the nazi party right in in the ku klux klan only about five percent of the democrats were actual active activist members of the kkk right now around the globe only about five percent of the Muslim population are active Islamists or, or jihadists. Uh, and, and, and it doesn't take all that many. What it takes is a handful who are willing to do the things that the woke are willing to do. And, and one of them is shaming. And you know, one, one of the reasons I get blowback, I hear when I compare them to Nazis, when I come, is because when we think of supremacist movements, we tend to associate them with their atrocities. And as atrocious as the behavior of the Democratic Party is, falsely accusing an innocent man of sexual, uh, sexual assault to keep him off the Supreme Court, you know, as atrocious as what they did, spurring riots by falsely reporting the Michael Brown story, as atrocious as what they do, their, their, their atrocities have not risen to the level of atrocities we tend to associate with their fellow supremacists. Well, keep these two things in mind. One, those atrocities weren't committed while they were still on the ascendancy. You can't commit those degrees of atrocities until you have full control of the government. Gas chambers and ovens and, 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 and guard towers and railroad tracks, they're expensive. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, just from, from a practical standpoint, you, you, they just couldn't. Hitler didn't have gas chambers in 1924, not because he wouldn't have, but because he couldn't yet have. Lenin didn't have gulags in 1916, not because he wouldn't have, but because he couldn't yet have. So to see the atrocious people who have not yet done what they're not yet capable of doing is not all that reassuring. And then I go back to the second part of this, which is they don't have to commit the atrocities that they had to. The killing fields, Mao's killing fields were 65 years ago. Hitler's death camps were liberated 75 years ago. The Russian Revolution was over a hundred years ago. Technologies have changed. Now they can accomplish the same end. You know, 
in order to dis, uh, disempower me financially, all right? They don't have to do what Hitler did and, and Kristallnacht and destroy their businesses physically. They can write a line of code and demonetize me. So, and, and of course, this is what Orwell warned about. I was going to make, make reference. You said uh, something earlier today. You were uh, characterizing the way the avenue, the avenues used by the left now, using the terms in Orwell's uh, book, which I mean, I'm sure you've all read. Everyone's read 1984. I mean, I read it in high school, and it sounds so preposterous. But 1984 is really we're way past what he was predicting. But he did a really insightful job of. T- depicting a society where you didn't really have to have war and killing people because you could control everything what people thought. And this is why I find what I find among the many things alarming about the left. That's why I mentioned this business about um, silencing people through intimidation and mockery. It takes some bravery in college campuses, college classes, high school, in society to speak up because what you're really being told is, well, if you speak up, they might say, well, oh, you're, so you're one of them. And so people you're, don't. You're a ra- in, instantly, you are a racist. Instantly, you are a bigot because the opposite of indiscriminateness is discrimination. Right. Yes. But so, what is? It's not reassuring that the the left has not committed the degree of atrocity. In fact, quite the opposite. What is what is frightening is how similar are their behaviors in the ascendancy. Right. Yeah. And and one of them is they all use shaming. Another one is every supremacist movement in the ascendancy has a quasi-independent military wing charged with doing the dirty work that it would be unseemly for the leaders to be caught doing. You know, Hitler had uh, the, the, the brown shirts. Uh, Lenin had um, the black shirts. Uh, the, they had the, the Ku Klux Klan. The, the, the Islamicists have uh, the, the uh, virtue and vice, the Committee of Virtue and Vice. All who go out, well, now they have Antifa, right? The other thing is the villainizing and even dehumanizing of dissent. In a supremacist movement, the other can never be portrayed or recognized as a good and decent person who just happens to be wrong. They must be, with with Hitler, the the Jews were, were vermin. With the Islamicists, the offspring of pigs and monkeys. With, with, the, with the Ku Klux Klan, it was blacks were subhuman. And today, it's that we are irredeemably deplorable to disagree with them. And by the way, the word irredeemably is so essential. You, you have to get, this was not a slip of the tongue on Hillary Clinton's part. This was a speech that was written for her. Now, as a speechwriter, I know how many eyes and how many checks you have to get from everybody involved so that you're not saying the wrong thing, that you're not contradicting them, so you're not letting uh, national security secrets out. So, you're not, so this was approved by everybody. She had given this speech numerous times and always behind closed doors, always off the record because she knew she was promoting Nazi-like supremacist. And the reason irredeemably is so important is because if we were redeemable, then a moral person would have to attempt to redeem us. But if we're irredeemably deplorable, then we don't need due process. We're already convicted. We don't need rehabilitation because they can't, we can't be rehabilitated. And this was not a mistake. And, and, and how closely associated that is, that disagreement makes you irredeemably deplorable, that they are love and we are hate and there is nothing else. That's a supremacist movement. You're an Islamicist or, 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 or you're an infidel. That's it. 
I do want to encourage our listeners, uh, if you haven't, we're speaking, first off, if you're on the radio, I'll make sure uh, you know this the show is America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Our guest today in studio is Evan Sayet, and his book is called The Woke Supremacy and Anti-Socialist Manifesto. I cannot urge you strongly enough. I am going to send it to some people unsolicited because it, it, you know, it's an impersonal communication. Encourage them to read this because I think what it does do for people who are already radically left, you know, they, they live in that place. It's what they believe in. and They're probably going to stay there a long time. But for many people, they got lured into, especially young people, got lured into thinking that they were the enlightened because they are now on this new path of socialism. And through the institutions, we talk about the long march of institutions was taught in K through 12 and in college. Young people have emerged thinking this is the new way that we, we are the now the more superior thinkers. We look back at America's having been very provincial the, and it's most the best ever in all of human history because everybody else in human history discriminated. <laughs> everybody until then believed the better did exist. Some were wrong in what they thought was the better. You know, the Islamists think Muhammad and, and, is, and, and the Quran are the better. But nonetheless, everybody who ever lived prior to the woke supremacist movement believed in, in fact, it's what makes you human is to seek the better. They are, but they believe that uh, there's no way. There's, I wonder if I could find the quote quickly from uh, Alan Bloom in The Closing of the American Mind. And he said the, their minds are so open that they can't learn any facts because everything's possible and therefore nothing is true. And, and he said to them, to his students at the time, all the world was mad. Everybody thought that they were right. And this led to xenophobia, homophobia, genocide. Their goal is not to correct the wrongs and actually be right. It is to never think they are right at all. And, and so they are the first and only people in human history. The, the problem is this, and I don't know if I, if I got to this earlier. I, I, I give a lot of these, so I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> You're doing great. But, Go right ahead. You're wonderful. But discrimination is an interesting word in that I do believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it's the only word in the English language where its first two meanings are diametrically opposed. Right? One meaning of discrimination is to use your intellect and experience to be able to see, to, to discern small differences between seemingly similar things. The other one, the other definition of discrimination is to reject your intellect and experience and to fail to see any differences between certain categories, as in, as in collectivism. And the problem is that the former is the antidote to the latter. If, they, if, if you want to eliminate the evils of discrimination, then use your intellect and your experience to seek out the differences between seemingly similar groups. But in order to eliminate the evils of discrimination, they've eliminated discernment. And so not only have they not eliminated discrimination, they've eliminated its only bulwark, the bulwark against Wow. Okay. Quickly for our radio listeners, because we have six minutes left with you, I want to be sure you know America Can We Talk. You can find the show online at americacanwetalk.org. You can find all past interviews, all shows, because we always get past your cutoff time, and I, I don't remember to tell that to you. So I'm, thank you for listening on radio. For everyone listening online, what we do at this show on Thursdays, we have a studio audience, and they have the opportunity to ask questions. And so someone over there, um, my gentleman, has the microphone, 
And what I would ask you to do if you have a question is, number one, try to keep it relatively short and speak up because, and right into the microphone because that's how they can hear it online. And so, uh, and these are questions for Evan Sayet. And again, for everyone, the book is The Woke Supremacy. I'm telling you, here's my little plug. It will help you realize what's happening in America today. You really realize what has captured so much of public thought that you think this is so bizarre. Why do people think this? This book will tell you why. Okay, go ahead. Um, thank you for being here today. This has really been enjoyable, and I have so many questions. I, I, I want Debbie's hour I, I just, just want you to know, converse. I do, I do, as a matter of fact, give the most enjoyable talk about supremacism. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my, my question is really to ask you to comment on what you think the impact of somebody like Jordan Peterson has been. And, and it's not just on the younger generation, but that's it, it's a very live college campus type phenomena, right? And, and then you see it incrementally going into the adult generations. I, I just wonder what you think about him and, and what he proposes, if he proposes anything. Yeah, I, I absolutely essential. God bless him. We'd be, you know, you, you try to bring every weapon to bear and some of them are, are pistols and some of them are, and, and he's an important weapon on our side. You know, the, the thing about the kids these days is um, they know that they're being manipulated. They want free speech. They want to be able to converse. They want to be able to entertain and decide for themselves what they believe and what they don't believe. And, and so I, I've, I've heard anecdotal and more than, than just a few about college kids under their sheets, under their blankets, listening to Jordan Peterson. Uh, you know, Ben Shapiro would be another one who's doing that, you know, uh, Charlie Kirk. And, and, you know, it's, I'd like to believe I'm important in there, but you know what? When it's coming from uh, experts, which I am not, I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm a, when it's coming from college professors, when it's coming from also people about their age, and, and more and more when it's coming from people who used to be respected by them, like Bill Maher, you know, Matt Taibbi. It, that's, to me, the most important thing is that we're getting some of them. So... You know, people ask me, what, what, what can you do? And I always think, you do everything. Just like in World War II, there were some people who fought in the trenches, and then there were some people who entertained the troops. Then there were some people who were Rosie the Riveter back home, and there were others who could just plant a victory garden. You know, even, even the teenagers or the kids drew a, a line up the back of their leg to simulate nylons for morale. You know, it's, it's not an either or, it's an everything always. Thank you. I have a quick question. You were describing what ultimately would happen, that some of the rhinos would come over, some of the, you know, those that were conservative, conservative, but what happens to the uber liberal, that small majority that's clanging the bell so loud and disrupting everything, they don't just vanish. They, they, they go back to working at McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no place for them. Um, you know, the, the only reason they have anything at the moment is because there's another group of Democrats. You know, there are the true believers. There, there are what I call the mindless foot soldiers. And then there are the prostitutes. And it's really impossible to tell from rhetoric and policy which one is which because they will all say the same thing. But Chuck Schumer's a prostitute. 
He, he's not an ideologue. He's not a left-wing fanatic. He's not a Marxist. He's not. He went like this, stuck his finger in the wind, and and now that they're getting hurt, you see Nancy Pelosi pushing back on the squad. You you see Chuck Schumer receding into and no longer wearing the dashikis and getting down on his knees, um, and and so. I don't really think there are very many, as I say, 5%, you know, in any supremacist movement. The problem is, one, we've got to speak up. Uh, and and that, that's actually, that's one, two, three, four, and five. I was going to do one quick question. I meant to do it. I'm sorry. And, and still, if you're formulating a question in your head, you'll have time to get to it. Uh, I mentioned to you before we um, came on today, this past Monday, so 10 days ago, there was a bulletin put out, a formal bulletin by the Department of Homeland Security in which they said, essentially, we're expanding our definition of understanding of domestic terrorism. And domestic terrorism can include somebody who disagrees with the government's position on COVID and vaccinations or who disagrees with the government's position on the uh, elections of 2020 or election policy generally and define this potential domestic terrorist because they might cause people to believe, uh, you know, disagree with the government and they might cause violence. And I just would love your reaction to what in the world, one, how could that belong in America? One, well, it can't belong in, in the America we love and we grew up in and that we have to fight for because that, there is nothing that they will not do. There, there's nothing that you would say, oh, they, they can't be, there's, there's nothing, I, I, I had a friend that, that I shared a home with many years ago and, and she would come down the stairs every morning and she had been watching her, the news on, on, her, on her Palm Pilot, that's how old I am. Um, <laughs> and, and she'd say, can you believe what Obama said today? Or can you believe what, can you? And, and, and I would say to her the same thing every, every day. I'd say, I wonder at what point the Jews stopped saying, can you believe what Hitler did today? This is who they are. There is nothing that's beyond the pale. There is nothing they hold sacred. It's all out war all of the time. And this is not just, just me. Go read Saul Alinsky, read his tactics, you know, Solinsky's manifesto, uh, Rules for Radicals, may be the only manifesto in all of human history that did not even pretend to be moral. There were, his was simply a prequel to, to Machiavelli's The Prince. The Prince was about how to keep power no matter what. This was a, a book about how to get power no matter what. And they're going to get power no matter what. They won't stop until we stop them. I agree. Other questions? Anybody? Oh, yep, there we go. Uh, the tenured university professors seem to be a big problem in this country over the last 50 or 60 years. How would you deal with them? Well, don't send your kid to college. That's, that's a good one. There's no reason for them to go. My, my estimation, my estimate, is that anybody who gets a, a, a Bachelor of the Arts is eight years behind somebody who doesn't go to college. Four years that they've been miseducated and four years that they weren't educated by the real world. Just stop sending your kids to, to these schools. There are, there are alternatives. If, if education is what matters and not just getting a piece of paper because it, it, it's 
it's it's a merit, not even a merit badge. It's just what you think you need to get that next job. But if an education is is what your child wants, you can get an education all by yourself. There are Hillsdale courses that, that are fantastic. There, there are all kinds of things other than sending and don't get a degree that's that's meaningless. You know what they've done, and and one of the I think it's a corollary, not a law of my unified theory, is. Leftist policies always occur in tandem. Every campaign on behalf of the evil, failed, and wrong is met with an equal and opposite campaign to tear down the good, right, and successful. And at the same time, they removed the great literature, the great art, the great science even. Science now, as in other supremacist movements, is in the service of the supremacy. At the same time that they removed things that can help you become great because you look outside yourself have been replaced by by courses in victimization so there's no growing involved because there's nobody else you can look at because why would you look at anybody else because nobody's any better than you are you've learned everything you need to know by the time you've left kindergarten so what are you to learn from these people in fact if somebody tells you you can learn from them they're racists Oh, my gracious. Evan said, unfortunately, we are pretty much out of time here. I do want to tell you, uh, ask you, you have another book coming out or you're working on. I'm working on getting close. And you're going to tell us all what we should do about all this. Is that about right? You're going to well, tell us how we should I, handle this? I, you know what? I'm, I'm not a tactician. Um, so what I do is I point people to my friend Trevor Loudon, who put out a, oh. I believe it was a nine point plan on actually what you can do. Uh, but I have a program I call Adopt a Democrat. All right. <laughs> you find one person in your life who you know is not a radical leftist, you know, but they've never heard from a conservative what a conservative believes. Everything they've ever heard about what we believe comes from them. And so you find one person in your life, and it's good that somebody in your life, a, a close relative, a, a, a longtime neighbor, a, a, a trusted and esteemed colleague, because it's just that much harder for them to dismiss you as stupid and evil, you know, if they, if they, if they know you and they love you. And it's just, they'll, they'll still do it, but it's just that much harder. Uh, and over the course of time, and this is a mistake our side makes, we are so obviously, so obviously right. Not in, always in our proscriptions, but in our recognition of good and evil, right and wrong, uh, that we think we're talking to adults. And that if we just explained it to them, <clears throat> And we try to convince them all at once. And it, it, they're, they're, they're truly moral and intellectually children. That's why I call my book The Kindergarten of Eden. Right? And so you have to kind of treat them like they're children. And if, we, if you're with your child, if you made everything a teachable moment, they would hate you. They would rebel. They would shut down. They wouldn't listen. So you find those moments that are most obvious, that are most teachable moments when when I, I remember from my cousin actually who is now more conservative than I am uh, wow uh, it's possible it, it truly is uh, but for for him what it was was the day that he got the Obama uh, premiums when when he couldn't keep his doctor when his premiums skyrocketed and it wasn't just selfishness it was that he didn't know what happened in Benghazi he wasn't there, so he had to trust the media. He didn't know what happened in Mexico with Fast and Furious. He wasn't there, so he had to trust the media. But when he got that and he was there and he saw that he was lied to, 
And, and all it really takes is, is a pinprick. You know, they, they sort of live in this cave. Did any other philosopher use a cave reference? Um, where they're told there's nothing out there, there's nothing out there, there's nothing out there. Well, all it takes is one pinprick and for light to come in. And they don't know the whole truth, but they do know they've been lied to. Evan Say it. thank you so very much for joining me today at America Can We Talk. Thank you very much. Again, our listeners, get this book, The Woke Supremacy. Give it to all your friends and relatives for, I don't know what, you know, the next holiday. Give it to, and really read it. It, it makes you actually feel better because you begin to understand things. On this show, America Can We Talk, uh, I encourage everyone to tune every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. My Thursday shows, a week from today, I will not be here. We're going off to a conference. But the following week, so the, it's the first, whatever the following week is, we have, I don't know the date, but we have on uh, Rebecca Friedrichs. She's been on the show numerous times. She uh, has a new film coming out, and she is the school teacher from California who became a plaintiff in a case, went to the Supreme Court. The gist of it is she's doing a new film talking about taking control again of public schools, and her film is called Whose Children Are They? She'll be, we'll do little features from her film coming up. She'll be here to talk about her efforts, her striving to reclaim the schools uh, in America for the parents and for the kids and the teachers and not the teachers' unions. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk? Truth about America. Can